The night before he was set to move, January 31st, he was ambushed and shot twice on his property. So little did Lorena or any of her loved ones or the other members of the House of Extravaganza know that would be her last performance. Alyssa placed a call to 911 screaming for help. It lasted only 10 seconds long. The dispatcher reported that she could hear her screaming and crying for help and asking for help, and then the call just dropped. Now, the day before he was discharged was the last day anybody ever saw him alive, and the last place he was seen was the Amico station owned by our boy Baha Hamdala. And he'd been under the microscope in a few murders, including a couple murder for hires. Close that was so close. <laughs> so, hey, welcome back to Bros and Murder, which is part two of the iceberg thing we're going down. And uh, this episode, we have two special guests with us. And for me, this is kind of like full circle because, <laughs> fun fact for Bros and Murder, the first ever like iteration of Bros and Murder was actually a live stream in Whitney's Facebook group. Like years ago. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I can't even stand it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, full circle. We came back around. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so cool. I just I'm so proud of that. Like I'm irrationally proud of the fact that your show started in my my Facebook group. There's me outside on my porch. <laughs> yep. <laughs> just like oh god, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Just sweating, talking about lynchings, you know. The huge. Yep. <laughs> the huge. No like like you do. Yeah, like, like you do. So do you guys want to uh, introduce yourselves real quick? Sure. Um, my name's Katie. I am Whitney's co-host, and uh, <laughs> she's she's <laughs> nice enough to let me on her show. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say, too. I'm Katie's co-host, and she's nice enough to let me on her show. Oh, my God. Yeah, True Crime Camp the Magi podcast edition. <laughs> <laughs> we are kind of an O. Henry story actually but yeah true crime campfire we're excited to be here we are super excited to be like where can people find your podcast everywhere everywhere, everywhere. we're in the rain and the stars and yeah. the <laughs> laughter of children <laughs> anywhere anywhere you, you find podcasts yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. and on amazon music now too mm-hmm. my eye is like weirdly leaking because of allergies so excuse me <laughs> Because you're so happy to be with us. That's why I know. I'm just, I'm just getting all nostalgic for sleeping with joy. I, just, I can't. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Robert, because you never go yes. first. So, you're going first. So, hit us with it. Okay. So, uh, my case takes place in 2012 of May. So, we actually just passed the 10 year anniversary of this cold case. So, Lorena Escalera, also known by their performance name, L'Oreal Extravaganza. Oh, wait, 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 pause. I forgot yes. to say, Battle isn't here. <laughs> also, you didn't introduce the show. What are we doing? I, did. I just got we excited. Because Battle's yeah. not here. I got excited and my eyes started leaking. So, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is Brothers of Murder, where we give you true crime cases of color, we go on tangents, and we play you music from artists you didn't know. We are down one battle because babies. Robert, you can pick back up. <laughs> okay, so May 2012, Lorena Escalera, who was also known by their performance name L'Oreal Extravaganza, was a member of House of Extravaganza, one of the premier performance communities in the New York ballroom scene. So for those of you who are familiar with Paris is Burning or any of the like ballroom culture in New York, houses are communities of artists that perform together, Uh, primarily in the ballroom scene, but elsewhere as well. Lorena originally immigrated to New York from Puerto Rico um, at the age of 18 and immediately began work as a makeup artist. And that is how she made her kind of break into modeling and performing as a member of the House of Extravaganza. So in the evening of 12th, 2012, Lorena was seen entering her apartment with two men following a performance earlier that same night. So little did Lorena or any of her loved ones or the other members of the House of Extravaganza know that would be her last performance. 
That same night, a passerby walking past Lorena's apartment noticed that there was a fire that had begun outside the building and immediately began door-to-door just getting people out of the building. During all of that commotion, Lorena was unaccounted for. I think around 4 a.m. when the fire was finally controlled by the fire department, Lorena's body was uh, recovered. And later, in an autopsy was performed, it was determined that suffocation and strangulation, but not smoke inhalation, was the cause of death, indicating that she had died before the fire was set. And fires Mm -hmm. can't strangle people, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Not specifically. No. (laughs) No. So the two men who were seen uh, entering the apartment with Lorena were nowhere to be seen. No one could identify them at the time, and they disappeared. So we just recently passed the 10-year anniversary of the death of Lorena Escalera. And so in those past 10 years, realistically, only two people of interest were ever identified and interviewed. Escalera's former boyfriend, Taylor Murphy, who was a firefighter, he was a primary suspect because the connection of firefighters and arson is actually pretty close. Lots of firebugs are drawn to working in fire departments. So that connection especially given that he was a romantic partner of Escalera's. They interviewed him but cleared him of suspicion. And additionally, there was um, a man who was seen on video in the apartment that evening, uh, Henry Pacheco, who had 26 prior arrests, including the potential murder of a woman by strangulation. Oh, uh, so there you go. He was identified as a possible person related to the scene, but a direct connection could not be established to the murder. Uh, a lot of that could be because there was a fire immediately afterwards, destroying evidence. Um, yeah. So there was not enough evidence to you know, convict him by any means. Uh, however, he is serving time currently for unrelated crimes. So uh, the fire didn't uh, start in her apartment, did it? Uh, no, it was not determined to start in the apartment. Oh, um, weird. There was electrical work that had recently be do- been done in the apartment building, and it was speculated that that electrical work may have caused the fire. So huh. we can't even directly okay. connect it to the murder. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I was thinking, like, oh, you covered up the evidence but setting a fire, but no, yeah. they, just got, they just got lucky, I guess. Still yeah. entirely possible. I don't I don't think that that's a, a hard fact. The, I'm not a fire scientist. I don't know even what that field is called. <laughs> no, it's not fire science. <laughs> yeah, it's called fire a, science. Yeah. <laughs> academic word. Yeah. Heat it's been like really discredited like a lot of the fire science like Mm -hmm. old cases have been getting overturned because there's just been a lot of stuff that's come into question too so you can't even be sure necessarily even if you knew that the person started it right well so this case as it was covered in the media in new york in 2012 was kind of a shitstorm. so the new york times reported on on the murder um however the article that the times put out centered around the lifestyle of escalera frequently uh, misgendered her, misgendered her throughout it it was 2012 just, even was... going on to describe her curvaceous body this not only was incredibly disrespectful to the deceased but reframed oh. the entire article around not not actually reporting the news but how her lifestyle may have contributed to her murder so uh, there is an organization called glad the gay and lesbian mm-hmm. alliance against defamation who, working alongside uh, Janet Mock, another transgender activist, um, kind of took the times to task, was able to meet with them uh, regarding the portrayal of transgender individuals in the media and get them some media training on how to handle this in the future. But it was very unfortunate uh, the way that they covered that case, especially in that critical time right after a murder when you know you're trying to gather witnesses you're trying to gather anyone who has saw anything and that kind of media portrayal not only could discourage someone from coming forward but again reframes the conversation about something totally unrelated Mm -hmm. uh, to getting the news out getting more information so if you know of an organization or a media group that has recently had a a mishandling of the portrayal of Mm -hmm. lgbtqi a plus people you can always go to glad.org they have a media defamation form that you can fill out um to kind of report these people Everyone especially go report if it's a news, news right now everyone just go report tucker carlson <laughs> i yes, have please. a feeling that fox <laughs> news is not going to give a shit about what glad has to say get lauren Graham too <laughs> yeah um, so that's a great resource glad g-l-a-a-d.org um as well as uh if you can supporting local artists in your area because if you're in a major city i can almost guarantee uh you have drag performers you have people uh, in your scene that you can be pers- uh visiting and patroning and giving your money to so do that 
Yeah. I mean, oh, yes. Drag queens, they put their heart and soul to that art craft. Too. Oh my so, God, don't they ever? Absolutely. Often so to the detriment of their bodies. Like they'll, they'll, and like, their wallets. Themselves in, in corsets <laughs> yeah. and like. Mm -hmm. You can only death drop so many times before your oh, knees right? just fucking give out. <laughs> Whenever I see oh. this video, I, like, I don't have the knee strength to get back up from that. Hell too. no. Oh no, me neither. I'll just death drop and die. That's yeah. It's a, it's a death drop. <laughs> that's, a, sure. that's it. Death drop. <laughs> Honestly, you know what? That's how I'm gonna die on my deathbed. I'm just gonna get up and <laughs> one death drop. <laughs> and then I'll back up. He died as he lived. He died doing what he loved. <laughs> Being All extra dramatic. <laughs> Take it away, cave money. All right, so I am actually covering uh, the death of Lewis Allen. Lewis Allen was a black businessman living in Liberty, Mississippi in the 60s, well, 50s and 60s. He had also been a veteran in World War II. In 1961, Allen witnessed the murder of Herbert Lee, who had been a prominent member of the NAACP working towards voter registration with the uh, student nonviolent nonviolent coordinating committee. Lee had been shot down by a white legislator named E.H. Hurst in, oh yes, in 1961. And Allen had been forced to give false witness of self-defense by Hurst. Eventually though, he recanted and said that Hurst had killed Lee for registering black voters. Oh. Jesus. Wow. Wait, Kelly, this is kind of similar to a case you covered, what? Mm -hmm. a couple Yeah, a couple times ago. Yeah, and I'm sure like this happened way more than we even have records of. Absolutely. But um, eventually, oh, knowing the danger in telling the truth, Alan asked the FBI to provide him with protection for giving his testimony, but they refused and he did not testify. Despite that, the news still spread about what he had said, and he was ostracized by the greater white community. Um, like he, he had a successful logging business and white people would turn their business away and other customers away from him. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Um, so what followed after was constant harassment and threats. Uh, the sheriff, Daniel Bryant Jones repeatedly arrested and jailed him being the son of a prominent Klansman and suspected reasonably so of being a Klan's member himself. When trying to vote in 1962, he was shot and threatened. Allen reported the abuse he suffered to the FBI and testified to the unjust treatment he was subjected to by Sheriff Jones. But given the nature of bureaucracy and thin protections for black people under the law, the complaints only ended up in Sheriff Jones's office. Of course. Oh, wow, great. Yeah. Some of those who work forces <laughs> are the same that burn crosses. <laughs> Mm. Who would have thought? Wow. Who would have thought? And resigned to the fact that nothing would change, in January 1964, Allen planned to move himself and his family out of Amick County, Mississippi, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The night before he was set to move, January 31st, he was ambushed and shot twice on his property. Oh, man. In an interview in 2011, his son Hank said that Sheriff Jones told his mother, quote, if Lewis had just shut his mouth, that he wouldn't, if Lewis had just shut his mouth, he wouldn't be laying there on the ground. He would be, he wouldn't be dead. Good. The case wasn't <laughs> thoroughly investigated until 30, 30 years later in 1994. It was again reopened in 2007, naming Sheriff Jones as the prime suspect, though, of course, with the significant passage of time, there was little evidence to build a case against him and convict, or even charge him, actually. Sheriff Jones was interviewed by 60 Minutes in 2011, where he denied the murder allegations and refused to speak on his connections with the Klan, which, I mean, if you can do anything but... Say that vehemently deny <laughs> that you're a clans member yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> that, like it's not that hard to be like no I, i'm not right i would never <laughs> that'd be a hard no yeah just yeah. denounce right. white supremacists you there know. you go didn't we just right. have a president who couldn't do that hmm. 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 Can something what is about it? that again stand an back and stand of... by <laughs> Again, send angry emails to Tucker Carlson at Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> He's the official scapegoat of this podcast. <laughs> Our hard stance. 
Tucker Carlson. Just, it's, a bold, it's a bold stand. Just just cyber bully Tucker Carlson. Honestly, <laughs> you can take nothing else from this show. Hey, because I you mean, know he hates it. Like he would claim he's like used to it and it rolls off his back. You know he just like stays. He's crying in his car right now. Mad as hell. Holding his toupee. He was bullied into not wearing a bow tie anymore. So maybe he we was, just like push yeah. it a little further. Thank God for that. Anyway. The small wins. Yeah. <laughs> we take our victories where we can. He's what a real man looks like, guys. I'm just saying. <sighs> peak peak <laughs> male performance. Just tasty and doughy. That is <laughs> peak male Have you seen his show yet? His new show, The Death of Men? <sighs> No, no. It's called, the, the the very first episode. It opens up like a gay porno. First off, it's just a bunch of shirtless men working out. Already, men, men that don't look like Tucker Carlson. So I don't know how <laughs> he's correlating it. But the first episode was all about why men should sunbathe their taint and balls. Right. Yeah. And then a bunch of doctors, yes. And then a bunch of doctors came out on Twitter and was like, do not do that. Your testicles should not go above (laughs) your body temperature. It'll kill your sperm. Yeah. So let them do it. If you're that dumb, if that's the kind of shit you consume. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're a good three months out. Do you guys remember in like the, like 2004, 2006 era, they had those books that came out by like, uh, Max Tucker, I think was his name. That was like mm-hmm. how to be a real man. It was like a frat boy yeah. writing those books. Familiar, think, yeah. yeah, we're like three months away from that coming back. I think like yeah, and it's all gonna be on like on TikTok know. now. Yeah, dude's <laughs> named Tucker, man. Can't trust him. Can't trust him. <laughs> well, it's funny the, too because oh I was no, just gonna no, say no, like no, no. they um I've seen that thing perpetuated by certain people on like social media where it's like, oh, we should start taking the um the caution labels off of things and let like you know (laughs) Darwinism do its thing and it's like Jesus Christ are you sure I think those are for y'all you know (laughs) yeah exactly yeah please do go right ahead cyber bullying brought to you by Bros and Burger (laughs) 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 all right so we're gonna go on to mine and mine took a little uh timeline reconstruction because the initial timeline that came out was like weak, but then there was a bunch of witnesses reportings over the last like 10 years that kind of pad out the story. So I'm going to get into it and then I'm going to give like my theory on what I think happened. Mm-hmm. So now my story is about a young black and indigenous woman who went missing. But we're going to start with her mother, Grace McLemore, who was 35 when she died in Kent, Washington. In 2009, due to disease called sclerodermia, is like the tightening of your skin and joints, which is an awful way to die because literally you kind of just get like solidified. Petrifying. But petrified, that's the word. But her daughter, 21 year old Alyssa, wasn't able to say goodbye to her or even attend her funeral. And the day after the funeral was the day that a police report was put in saying that she has been missing for the last four to five days. So like many other cases of missing indigenous women and black women, we don't have a lot of information or we don't know what happened, but I'm going to try my best to <laughs> piece it all together. So now on April 9th, around 6.30 p.m., the day before Alyssa disappeared, she and her grandmother talked on the phone about her mother's declining health. Alyssa promised her grandmother, who she also lived with, that she would come home and spend time with her as much as she could because... She's usually out on the streets being a 21-year-old and not being at home. But she obviously never made it home. So what happened to Alyssa? Now, that evening, Alyssa was seen in Kent West Hill, which is an area known by law enforcement to be frequented by, like, sex workers. That, that both, Yeah, just hanging around that area. Every city has that kind of area, too. Nothing new. Now, the witness who reported it said that they seen a 90s model pickup truck approach Alyssa talk to her and her getting in the car. It's not known by fact that Alyssa was a sex worker, but it should be noted that before her disappearance, like a day, two days before that disappearance, another witness saw Alyssa getting into a pickup truck with a Caucasian man around his 50s and 60s. Now, three hours after that first phone call with her grandma at uh, 630, Alyssa placed a call to 911 screaming for help. And it lasted only 10 seconds long. The dispatcher reported that she could hear her screaming and crying for help and asking for help. And then the call just dropped. The dispatcher said that she couldn't track the location of the phone because Alyssa's phone didn't have a GPS sensor. So she most likely had a burner phone. 
So now law enforcement did not learn about that call until the next day, where once they learned about it, they visited, you know, the shared home between the grim mom and the rest of the family and told the grandmother Barbara, like, hey, did Alyssa make a home? We got this call reported in, you know, we have no leads. They explained that they haven't seen Alyssa, they haven't talked to her, and that they wanted to file a missing persons report. But the two police officers told the family that it was far too soon and they need to wait 72 hours, which is a myth. Oh, you do God. not have to wait. No. <laughs> you oh, don't have to wait that. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, you do not have to wait that long to file a missing persons report. No. As soon as they are out of their normal schedule, you can Absolutely. call. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There is no time that limit. Kills so, me, that thing. And which is a common myth that people believe too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's on TV, like a Law and Order SVU. There's like a million episodes where they're like, oh, yeah. Wait three days. And yeah, it's like, it's not, 24. <laughs> like, within they, 24 hours, a missing person is dead. Yeah. So they, but they told her, you got to wait. She's an adult. She could have disappeared, you know, yeah. voluntarily. And this That's is after crazy. they, this is after they knew about the 911 call. So it's like, you, oh, come you on. Think, she you thinks something sus would be up. Jesus. That's horrible. So knowing now that she was last seen being approached by a guy in a pickup truck in a area known by sex workers late at night, you'd think that the police would kind of get the ball rolling and thinking, hey, something could be amiss. Sadly, three days after disappearance, her mother died of her illness, and the next day is when the police report was finally filed. Wow. Good old police. Doing so it job. took her missing her mom's funeral? Is that basically what finally like got them to said, Oh, mobilize? yeah. We should yeah. probably do something. Not wow. her screaming into the phone. Right, exactly. That wasn't good enough for him. Yeah. Well, that sucks. So in 2009, Alyssa joined the thousand, uh, thousands of indigenous women that go missing every year. According to the National Institute of Justice, uh, four out of five indigenous women have experienced violence. And according to the CDC, murder is the third leading cause of death for indigenous women as they face murder rates 10 times higher than the national oh average. Wow. Yeah, sadly, I there are. Wow. Because uh, a lot of it's unreported, though, too. Yeah. Because there's not a lot of talk between like cops on the reservation and then cops like outside of the reservation. There's not a lot of information sharing either. Yep. That always causes problems. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I did not know it was 10 times. That is just yeah. that's bananas. That's awful. And sadly, there are also not a lot of avail- uh, data to track these actual numbers because. Mm-hmm. A lot of these cases with indigenous people get undercounted and underreported. Yeah. And at 2020, Savannah's Act became a law requiring departments of justice to review, revise, and develop strategies and policies to address the vast number of unsolved cases of missing and murdered indigenous people. Because, like, the number is that staggering and the disparity in data is just, like, uh, insane. Well, I was, I wish I had saved it, but there was this, uh, pair of sisters i think on tiktok who said that we're pretty sure our dad murdered like a bunch of missing indigenous women i remember that oh, wow. yeah, and yeah. they could mm-hmm. not get the police to listen to them mm-hmm. they were like begging for the police to listen and like because i think their dad had passed at this point but like mm-hmm. investigate maybe take dna samples and the police were like mm, no thank you yeah. And I have a rage migraine by the end I'm of the day. Y'all. Lord. But yeah, so I mean when it comes to you know people who consume true crime, I think that to be an ally to our indigenous friends, we should take that extra step to spotlight, look at, read those cases, and just have, you know, be more of an active listener because they they're, they're going through it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, There's not a knowledge enough. Uh, mm-hmm. I recommend reading, there's a book called Yellow Bird. It's about an indigenous woman who wanted to investigate a murder herself. And it w- went through her like story of like, you know, she was um, addicted to drugs and opiates. And so she went through this like whole story about uh, redemption and then going through investigating a murder as well as I think um, Killers Under the Flower Moon, because this has been going on. For so much longer than we want to acknowledge because Killers Mm -hmm. Under the Flower Moon um, took place in Oklahoma, um, covers a few murders, but they're all indigenous women. And it was over like 100 years ago. 
that these mm-hmm. women are dead. And there, it wasn't until I think most recently that they figured out who did it. It's Jesus Christ. It's upsetting. Yeah. I mean, even like the entire uh, highway of tears up in Canada. I was just I mean, thinking like, about that. Yeah. Like the fact that that's its whole reputation is all of the indigenous people, specifically usually women who have gone missing from it mm-hmm. or ended up dead. Yeah. Well, and we talk about the exploitation of Native American communities. Um, a lot of these people who are forced into sex work are doing this out of economic anxiety. Mm-hmm. Economic anxiety that is directly enforced upon them by the state. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is the end result of state-sanctioned violence against these communities. No uh, question. So it, it, this isn't just a, an individual lone wolf kind of scenario like, oh, Canada must have a lot of serial killers. Oh, also no. the U.S., obviously. But yeah. yeah, these sorts of things wouldn't be happening if these people had stable sources of income and weren't Absolutely forced into agree. sex work. And that's not to say not all of them um, are forced into choose, sex work. Some people yeah. choose to you know, uh, sure. engage in sex work, which is a totally different discussion. Yeah. Um, Blame the and state I, whenever. I but that's true. And then they get stigmatized for that. Then mm-hmm. like you're talking about the media coverage and like, the big headline will be like, you know, they usually would use a different word, but sex worker murdered. Like if that mm-hmm. comes the story and it's, it's just infuriating. And it's victim blaming, right? Cause it's a, it's a high risk really? job. And um, I think decriminalizing sex work is a big step to like giving changing women. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Changing I mean, what the, if, better way to like you weaponize a system but like force people into states of poverty so that they have to do jobs that they know that they will be stigmatized for so that when bad things happen to them it's blamed on personal responsibility you know mm-hmm. like yeah if he gave sex, sex, sex workers safe spaces and like amnesty when it comes to reporting crimes and stuff like that yeah. probably would save a lot of women mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's hard to come forward and be like, oh, hey, I just got sexually assaulted. When you're like, oh, I might get arrested, too, by just reporting this myself. Well, right. I mean, and at the end of the day, what kind of people are we trying to, you know, put away in prison? Is it people who are sex workers providing a service that clearly we all engage in in some way? Or is it those people that are assaulting people and murdering people and raping people? Because like, of their job. And they know a, that no one's going to talk like, about it. Like purely like a community preservation like that's the kind of person we need to prioritize like putting behind the bars like give you them amnesty like you would think so yeah absurd. and then when those women when those people try to defend themselves and they often will end up in prison too like we get Centoya and yeah. you know it's just what it's do you do lose, yeah. it's lose lose yeah it's like you're just trapped in this box of well, I mean, isn't that kind of the rub? Because the people making the laws are the people who are benefiting from it. Right. Well, yeah. That's, yeah. Well, and then they, and then especially now they fall back on the myth of the taken scenario where, you know, pretty white women are trafficked. And that's the never mall. the case. That never mm-hmm. happens. Trafficking happens um, to vulnerable communities. And I think like 99.9% of the time it is done by someone who the victim trusts. It is not some stranger in Target. I don't know how many fucking videos I've seen of like women and blonde women in Target on their phone shaking. Like I was almost trafficked oh in a Target. A Hispanic <laughs> man is the worst about me. that. It's like no. no. I've seen one video on TikTok of this woman. Uh, it was like a dad and his daughter at Walmart just buying groceries. And the woman on the TikTok, she's like, she's like, oh, I think this girl's being trafficked. I went up to her and asked if she was okay, and the man was like get away from my daughter. I just found that suspicious. It was like, because you just harassed <laughs> a man and his small daughter at Walmart. Yeah. And she didn't apologize. Everyone in the comments no. was like, yo, what the You're fuck? You're being weird. Yeah. And she was like, yeah. I'd rather be safe than sorry. And it's like, that's not your job. <laughs> like, man, You're being weird. We just did one. We just did. We have a dipshit of the month on our patrons only episodes. And one of our dipshits of the month was this woman who saw a guy taking pictures of these two children and went and reported him to a security guard. The security guard goes over and like talks to the guy and then he's like, yeah, these are my kids. We're just like out having a day. And then goes back and reports to the woman, it's all good. Those are his kids. And then she went and still pepper sprayed the guy and ran away. And they still haven't found her as far as I know. Like she was just pissed she was wrong, I guess. Or I don't know what her deal was, but what? Yeah, it's like just just being hyper aware. But the people who are always hyper aware are always the ones who are like, 
only put it on Facebook first. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. That's your first move is to TikTok it, not, and, you know, and listen, police or whatever. Like, use your white woman audacity for good. That is like how <laughs> the best way to weaponize your white white womanness is your like, power, well, great power yeah. comes great responsibility. Yeah, you see a you see a cop talking to like a black kid. Like, take, take your camera out. Get in the cop's face. Yeah. It's fine. Don't Parents take my advice. Justice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't take my advice. I'm yeah. leave don't the people at Walmart alone. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too that like you were saying, Katie, as far as the whole like white woman being trafficked in Target, like. Look at all the hubbub around Gabby Petito going missing. Yeah, As yeah. though, like, the, those would be the the people who would be the most disadvantaged to traffic, so to speak, because yeah. they would draw the most attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like, it's easier to take people who are already in a bad position. Who, yeah, who, exactly. No one will miss. That yeah, is the exactly. yeah, right, quote, exactly. quote unquote runaways and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. That's always the biggest because it's the easiest victim pool for serial killers, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mm-hmm. whole less and dead that's why. thing. The less dead mm-hmm. thing, yes. Exactly. It's very gross. And now, a message from our sponsors. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So you guys want to take it away? Right, we're now the tail end of our iceberg. <laughs> so we're going to tell you a hell, a hell of a story, and then we're going to do an update on another case. So you got to buckle up for this one. So one of the FBI's most baffling unsolved cases is the murder of a guy called Ricky McCormick. Ricky was 41 years old when his body showed up face down in a cornfield in West Alton, Missouri, which is about 20 minutes from St. Louis on June 30th, 1999. Ricky was kind of a troubled guy. He had a lot of health issues for one thing, like problems with his heart and his lungs. And those have been going on pretty much his entire life. And according to the people closest to him, it also seems likely he had some undiagnosed mental health issues too. He was prone to telling tall tales, as one friend put it, like kind of fantasist type stuff, escapist type lies, stuff that made him seem bigger and badder and cooler and richer than he really was. When in reality, Ricky was struggling a lot financially, working odd jobs to get by. And like he didn't have a car, which was like, which is probably one of the weirdest things about where his body turned up. Like it was 30 minutes away from St. Louis where he lived. So like, how the hell did he get all the way out there? Um, another weird thing is this. When Ricky's body was discovered, it was super decomposed. Like, so badly that, like, the tips of his fingers had basically rotted off and were just laying there in the grass next to him. Ugh. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. He had only been missing for three days, which is bizarre. So weird. And we looked up the weather in St. Louis, Missouri from June 17th to June 30th, 1999. And the temp did get up to 90 for a few hours on one of those days. Like it didn't seem hot enough the rest of the time to decompose somebody to that extent. No, not in that like three day window when he was missing. I actually spoke to a nurse friend of mine. He used to work for a coroner and she said, yeah, that is not hot enough. So I'm wondering if his body was like stored somewhere for a day or two before he was dumped in the cornfield, like a greenhouse maybe, or probably more likely like the trunk of a car, like maybe a dark colored car that would really soak up the sun and just bake anything that was inside because it just doesn't seem likely that he just laid there and decomposed that much in that little three day window. And the area where his body turned up was kind of notorious for just being like strewn with dead bodies. Like in just the five years before his body was found, there were several other murdered people, all women, but several other murder victims found along that same stretch of road. Some like really close to where they found him. Now, because Ricky was so decomposed when they found him, the autopsy was tricky because, you know, the longer somebody's been decomposing, the harder it is to figure out what killed them. So the medical examiner couldn't find a definitive cause of death and ended up ruling it undetermined. But the police were convinced it was a murder, probably because he was just so far from home. So they started digging into Ricky's life and 
to try and like figure out what happened. Um, Ricky had a checkered past, so to speak. Um, yes. He'd served time in jail for statutory rape. And this is very gross. So content warning for the next like couple minutes. This happened in 1992 when he was 34 years old. The police found out that Ricky had two children with a girl who was younger than 14 years old. Oh, God, that's and awful. apparently this abuse had started when she was only 11. So that's oh. just horrifying. Um, oh. So he went to jail for that for a really pitifully short amount of time. Um, like just more than a year, a little more than a year. Oh. So, yeah. Oh, yep. yep. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's statutory uh, really grosses me out because she was a child. Um, yeah. But that sounds like a possible no- motive for murder to me, right? Hell yeah, it does. This is a hell of a <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, like for sure. It's it definitely. I mean, that's the first thing that sounds like a motive for murder, but it ain't the last. So, the investigators talked to Ricky's family and his girlfriend, which was not the victim from the abuse case. This was an adult girlfriend, and they looked into some stuff that we're going to get into in a minute. But they couldn't make anything stick. Lead after lead after lead just kind of dissolved. They couldn't prove anything, and the case went cold. But there was more to it. 12 years later, the FBI announced for the first time, apparently, that Ricky had had two handwritten notes in his pocket the night his body was found in that field. And the notes were in code, some kind of encrypted cipher code, a combination of letters and numbers. I know, just deal with that for a second. Is that just freaking bananas? And in 12 years, the FBI's best code breakers hadn't been able to figure it out. Now, They were releasing pictures of the notes and asking for the public's help to crack them. So this is nuts for a couple of reasons. First, because the FBI usually manages to figure out a cipher code in like two or three hours. Like these are among the best people in the world at this shit. And second, because Ricky McCormick, according to his family, really struggled with reading and writing. His dad said he could write his own name, but other than that, he just kind of scribbled but now we have these two notes and the best crypto analysts in the country could not figure them out. They seemed completely convinced that Ricky wrote them himself too. And they said they felt like these notes were their best chance of solving Ricky's murder. One of my, yeah, it's bananas. One of my favorite things about this case, if you can't have a favorite thing about a brutal murder, um, (laughs) is that I was looking on like crypto analyst forums on this case and people really varied widely, (laughs) wildly between uh, it's, it's nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. If the feds couldn't figure it out, then whatever. And I'm like, that's all they ask. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what happened with the Zodiac is that his code was wrong. Yeah, they, he fucked up his code, and that's why no one could crack it. Yeah, exactly. Nice you kind of have to Bruce. assume. That- <laughs> 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 you bastard! You have to assume there's some internal logic to it, or it kind of falls mm-hmm. apart, right? That's the yeah. weakness of of code breaking. Yeah. Um, and then other people that are just like, "It's a suicide note. Don't bother." And I'm like, "Okay, let's why back up." Thank you for uh, so there's a couple important things to know about these notes. Like, like I said, first, your instinct might to be might be to say like, well, maybe the reason why nobody can figure it out is because they're just gibberish. Like he just scribbled on paper. He couldn't write whatever. But the feds are pretty sure that that's not the case. Like they're trained to recognize the difference between meaningless gibberish and actual intentional code like with patterns and stuff. Yeah. And they're very confident that this is code language. The other interesting thing is this. There's some controversy. 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 (laughs) Uh, There's some controversy between the authorities and Ricky's family on this. The family says they weren't told anything about the notes when his body first turned up. They only found out about them when the FBI released them to the public 12 years down the road. Now, this might be because they were holding that detail close to their chest because they didn't want to compromise the investigation. Like, investigators do that in just about every case. Um, Like, you were just talking about um, the Gabby Petito case where everyone was freaking out because they didn't release everything, but it's just because they have to. Um, They have to hold up some stuff back so they can tell the difference between the killer and somebody who's just read about the case in the news. But you can see where it would upset his family, right? Like they found out with the rest of the public. 
Yeah, and and here's a frustrating thing. Some sources, there's contradictions everywhere in this case. Some sources say that Ricky's mom has been quoted as saying that when Ricky was a child, he had his own made-up language, and only he understood it, like not even his mom understood it. And she said he used to write stuff in his secret language sometimes. But then other sources quote her as saying he couldn't write anything but his own name, and she didn't buy it or whatever, that those notes were his. So which sources are accurate, we don't really know. So anyway, although his mom might have some doubts, the FBI seems absolutely confident that Ricky wrote those notes. And one thing that strikes me, apparently Ricky might have been dyslexic. He had some learning difficulties. He had a really hard time in school. And I'm wondering if the combination of that, plus the fact that Ricky had his own secret language, is what's making this cipher so hard to crack. So, I mean, if I have my own language and I love you is like dinosaur cheesecake farm, like a code cracker might just be like, that can't be it. That doesn't make any sense. Right. So that's just a theory. Yeah. That and totally this, makes sense. Yeah, like if yeah. it's the equivalent is something that is completely made in his own head. Like, and then we're concept, going in, like dyslexia yeah. on top of that too. If you don't, exactly, exactly. If you don't get like this proper, like therapy and guidance for that, but if you're in, you're just going to make a bunch of gibberish. Well, and if exactly. your brain doesn't play by the same rules of language, as mm-hmm. like neurotypical people, that would make sense. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. like with, with stenographers. So each stenographer um, or court reporter has their own way of typing. So right. it could be individual to each, which is possibly what's going on here. Yeah. It could um, be like his own version of shorthand that he's just like made mm-hmm. up for sure. Yeah. So there could be any number of reasons why this is so difficult to crack. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take you back now to a few theories surrounding the actual murder or probable murder, whatever. Um, Ricky had apparently worked off and on at this Amoco gas station in St. Louis. And the owners of this gas station were, to coin a phrase, shady as fuck. Um, (laughs) The first guy who owned it stabbed his neighbor to death during the argument in 94. Wow. Great. And yeah. Uh, ended up dying in prison, serving out his sentence for murder. Now, the next owners were brothers named Juma and Baha Hamdala, um, and they weren't any better. Mm-hmm. According to the Riverfront Times article on this case, Baha had gang and drug associations and was a violent guy with fondness for guns and knives. And Juma shot Baha once, like during an argument. Yeah, and Baja survived and didn't press charges, which, damn, like that kind of tells you something like right there. You know? Slapstick, like, do Three Stooges. <laughs> right. yeah. And it's just what we do. It's just, it's, instead of slapping each other upside the head, we just, you know, attempt Shoot to murder each other. Each other. In our gas station. <laughs> it's this it's cursed like gas, gas station. It's like a fucking Bermuda Triangle or something. Anyway. So Baja sounds like a scary dude. He tried to kill a guy once by shooting at him from his car and did this right in front of like a detective and a street full of witnesses. So like did not give a shit, obviously. He missed the guy, fortunately, but yikes. And another time Baja shot another one of his brothers in the stomach. And once again, the brother refused to press charges or even to say anything to incriminate Baja. He went out of his way to lie about who shot him. So I don't know if this was the family loyalty or more likely because we just scared shitless of the dude. And yet another time, our boy Baja beat the finger-licking fuck out of a poor guy named Elro Carr with a flipping hammer because the guy was trespassing in his yard. So overreact. What, what, what is in the water in St. Louis? <laughs> I, I was just, just going to tell us, Robert. Louis. It's, it's bad. He was walking through yeah. the yard. I was just in St. Louis and, and just, they, they gave my... I was there for work and my coworkers gave me very specific routes to take. Cause they're like, mm. no, yeah. don't go here. Don't go here. <laughs> no, you're by yourself. We want you to not. Yes. St. Louis is rough. Wow. Well, yeah. <sighs> anyway, for this, he was finally arrested and charged with second degree assault. But before it could go to trial, Elro Carr was mysteriously shot to death a few blocks down from the Amoco station Baja owned with his brother. Shocking. No complaining witness, no case, and the assault charge was dropped. Hmm. I wonder what happened there. It's a mystery. It's a thinker. (laughs) (laughs) If only the great great Robert Stack were here to guide us through (laughs) this unsolved mystery. (laughs) (sighs) Unsurprisingly, more than one witness came forward to say that Baja had had the poor guy murdered so he couldn't testify against him. 
Yeah, so where does this Baha Hamdala guy come into Ricky's case? Well, according to Ricky's girlfriend, Ricky had worked for Baha sometimes, and I'm not talking about pumping gas. Ricky's girlfriend said he was making trips down to Florida for Baha to pick up large amounts of weed to sell. And then sometimes he'd hold on to the weed for Baja for a while. So the investigators were actually able to corroborate those trips to Florida. He'd made one about a week before he turned up dead. And his girlfriend said that the last time he came back from Florida, he seemed really freaked out and scared and really worried. And apparently about five days before he turned up in that cornfield, Ricky showed up at the ER saying his chest hurt and he was having trouble breathing. They did test. It wasn't a heart attack. It occurs to me it might have been a panic attack. But they kept him for observation for a couple days. And um, his girlfriend thinks that the ER visit may have actually been less about chest pain and more about looking for a safe place to hide out for a few days, somewhere where he wouldn't have to put any of his own family or friends at risk. Now, the day before he was discharged was the last day anybody ever saw him alive. And the last place he was seen was the Amico station owned by our boy Baha Hamdallah. Ricky's girlfriend, um, who is not the no no this is an adult. Yeah, yeah yeah different different woman uh, different immediately people. assumed it was Baja who killed him but there's another suspect too a big time drug dealer called Gregory Knox um, this dude's territory included the apartment complex where Ricky lived and he'd been under the microscope in a few murders including a couple murder for hires. And apparently, after Ricky's death, a confidential informant came forward to say that Knox had killed a black man whose body was dumped in a field in exactly the area where Ricky's body was found. And the police believed Knox had done some shady stuff with the Hamdala brothers. So there may be a connection there. But despite multiple stakeouts and a shit ton of interviews, the investigators were never able to make anything stick, either with Baja or Gregory Knox, who ended up in prison for something else shortly after Ricky's death. Yeah, Baha actually did, too, for another murder. I forget who the victim was, but Baha ended up in prison, and then he ended up out of prison because he appealed successfully, got a retrial, and was acquitted the second time. So they both, but Gregory was still in prison as of, like, 2013. I think he's out now. So, um, and they both deny any involvement. We should be clear about that. And so where does this leave us? Well, basically, it leaves us with those mysterious coded messages that they found in Ricky's pocket. And that is why the FBI is asking for our help. So if you happen to be good at puzzles, check it out. The notes are both very widely available online. Yeah, I I wonder if the notes could be some kind of like code to keep track of the drug dealing or transporting or whatever. I was just about to say that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like a list. (laughs) Yeah, like a list of clients or absolutely. Well, the thing I'm curious about, too, is you said that he doesn't drive, right? Mm-mm. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So how was he going back and forth to Florida? He took a bus, he took right? A bus. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. a Greyhound bus. Because mm-hmm. that seems dicey. It's weird. It's weird. Totally. It is weird, actually. Like, where are you holding that weed when you're sitting on that bus, you know, just like in your <laughs> double bag or whatever? But yeah, that's apparently what he did. nobody texts. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we also don't have any information on what would have caused, like, the rapid rate of decomposition that is like, fascinating yeah. to me he, he, he wasn't like in a pool somewhere. or something yeah well, i don't know yeah they said in, water is a really good somewhere. possibility definitely oh, somewhere maybe really like a hot. one of those big old freezers mm-hmm. but that, but that would, would slow, slow down decompose. yeah that would, that would slow be down. somewhere hot i think like the trunk of a car like out in the sun or something like i was that. thinking because definitely the, was stored somewhere i think because the skin sloughed off i was thinking water too yeah, I mean, water is really... And they, or even just, like, wrapped up in a tarp in a heat. Like, that yeah. just... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't know, like, we don't know, really, we don't know the cause of death either. So there That's was nothing yeah. nothing released to the public about that. It was solely about the, um, the code that was released. So I'm wondering right. if maybe the manner of death is significant. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so. I mean, honestly, keeping coded notes is not a good thing to do if you work for drug dealers if uh, a very dangerous person finds out that you are writing in code no shit, and right? you work for yeah. me that's a red flag mm-hmm. yeah, yeah like, i think it's absolutely could have been exactly what got him killed yeah was running well, and also of, just working yeah. in that sort of industry um mm-hmm. you are around dangerous people constantly like he could have been absolutely. killed by any number of you know rival dealers or other gang affiliated yeah. people mm-hmm. or, or yeah. someone could have just found out that he was a child molester yeah and, yep. there's absolutely <laughs> not, that's the other thing is <laughs> yep. 
that's a pretty darn good motive for murder right there. But the fact that he came back from, from that last trip to Florida that he made for Baja Hondala and was freaked out and scared when he got in. Mm-hmm. His girlfriend said he normally didn't want to talk about the trips, but this was different. This was like he was really worried about something. And that seems to me to be an awful big coincidence that then five days later he turns up dead. Yeah. So, Weight is wrong or something on what he's delivering. Yeah. Yeah. You know, could be anything. Exactly. Something like that. Well, and also another kind of point that we covered was the altercations that these people could have gone to jail for if people would have mm-hmm. come forward about it right? Um, and Absolutely. potentially save this man's life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So if you want, if you want to try your hand at code breaking, there's a number of <laughs> forums. They all seem very annoying. I'm not going to lie. I would say, I can't imagine the subculture of code crackers. That <laughs> like, yeah, the forums talking about that. They are geeks. Time. And uh, one of them tried to explain something and I was reading through tr- and it, nothing stuck to my brain. They were like, well, yeah. if nine point did it, I'm like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. I can't understand this. My <laughs> husband is really good at code cracking. Just so you well, know, like, put him on we, this one. come on, he's real- I am going to, I'm planning on it. I'm like, take a look at this. <laughs> we were working on that hunt a killer thing, like that detective mm-hmm. story subscription box a few years ago. And there was a cipher code and I was just like, sweating bullets trying to figure this thing out. I gave it to him and he's like, I got it, like 10 fucking minutes later. I was so mad, but also kind of turned on, so it was conflicting. Yeah, gross. But, yeah. <laughs> he had a lot to think about. Yeah. I was both angry and a little aroused. All right. Anyway, so yeah, try to crack it, hell. Why not? There's a lot of ease, I noticed. Lots of ease. People there are a lot that- of ease. And there's numbers in there, which mm-hmm. just fucks my brain up. I don't know what the numbers mean. It's is, alpha, is it just alphanumeric or are there symbols too? There it's are parentheses marks, yeah. but otherwise it's just letters and numbers. And then there's one page yeah. that's um, got like sections s- sectioned out. There's like yeah. five sections. So I'm like, okay, what, does, what could that possibly mean? And then the next page is not sectioned then out. And the like, next one oh, isn't, oh. which is like, God damn it. There's like nothing consistent. So annoying. But go check it out. I mean, if you're yeah. all code geniuses or anybody listening, help break it, man. Help solve a murder. Okay, so moving on to the second case, and this one's short, so it's just more of an update, really. The murder of North Carolina college student Faith Hedgepeth. Now, y'all probably remember this one. It was all over the news when it happened. It's been covered a lot. Investigation Discovery did like an hour-long special a year or two ago. It's really sad. She was a beautiful, vibrant girl, whole life ahead of her. I forget how old she was, but she was really young. She was still in college. So I'm just going to kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of what happened, and then we'll get to the update. So on the morning of September 27th, 2012, Faith's roommate Karina came home and found her body in her bedroom, covered in blood and just horribly bruised. Investigators found she'd been beaten with an empty liquor bottle, and there was this creepy clue left at the scene. There was a fast food bag with a message like scrawled on it, and it said, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous. Yikes, right? Super creepy. I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous. And there's another upsetting detail. Faith's tampon had been like taken out and laid on her bed, which I only mentioned because that kind of thing can be like a signature element. That's the only reason why I even bring that up because it seems like it might be something that like a serial killer would do as a signature. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, of course, heavily suggests that there was a sexual assault, as did the fact that they found um, semen on her body. So obviously, you know, it seems like a sexual killing. The CSIs collected the semen and some additional DNA samples, including the same profile that was on that creepy note. Mm-hmm. And while everybody waited on the results of those tests, and we all know it takes a while, investigators dug into Faith's life. So... She'd had some conflict recently with her roommate's ex-boyfriend, Ty. Now, Ty and Karina had a toxic relationship, and Faith had encouraged Karina to dump him and take out a restraining order. Ty felt like Faith was standing in the way of his relationship, and they'd exchanged some nasty texts about it. So he was the first major target of the investigation. Um some people even thought Karina might have been involved in it with him. Like, they felt like her 911 call sounded fake. Um, and if you listen to it, it, it's, I found it weird. I, I don't think she had anything to do with it. I think it's more likely like a Foxy Noxy situation, Mm -hmm. um, where people just act weird. Yeah. I'm going to say, when you see a dead body, you know how you're going to act. 
<laughs> Definitely. It did not seem weird to me, but like, yeah, she and I were texting about this. I, I know it did seem very strange to a lot of people. So I think I might be in the minority on that. It just didn't sound weird to me, but whatever. And, and Faith had been out with Karina and some other friends at a club that night before she was murdered. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's why people started to kind of side eye Karina. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and while she was at the club, um, Faith butt dialed one of her friends and left like a three minute voicemail. Now that voicemail would become an obsession for internet sleuths for a while, especially after an expert cleaned up the audio and created a transcript of what he believed was being stuff. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, he created a transcript of what he believed was being said stuff like get off me. I think she's dying and just throw it in the river. Oh, Jesus. But okay, I but this is the tra- yeah. He, he I listened to it. I don't the hear- audio transcript. Yeah, I don't hear. I forget what the, what the phenomenon is. As like when you yeah when you're listening to something that you really can't hear, your brain will kind of just put in exactly order words. Yeah, yeah, right. like in the. In the 80s, where you'd play uh, 70s and 80s, you'd play records backwards and <laughs> right. satanic, and it'd always be like, yeah. "Hail Satan, kill your parents." Yeah. You right. can listen. You can listen to it online. I it genuinely sounded like one of those like ghost hunting recordings where they're like, yeah, "I heard, I heard a little boy," and no, I don't hear anything. Yeah, it's complete horseshit. If you ask me, it just sounds like gibberish. If you close your eyes and don't look at the transcript and just listen to the audio, like you don't hear any of that stuff in there. So to me, it sounds like exactly what it is, which is a butt dial in the middle of a noisy nightclub. And however much that sound expert tried to act like the timestamps on cell phones can't be trusted, the stamp on that voicemail meant that the call happened while she was at the club with her friends around a million people alive and well, not at the time of the murder. Okay, so it's a no-go for me. I'm sorry, sound guy. And nothing was thrown in the river, for God's sake. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Calm (laughs) down, nerds. So anyway, DNA finally came back and ruled out Karina and her pissed-off boyfriend, Ty, or ex-boyfriend. And the case kind of stalled for a while. But then Parabon Nanolabs came onto the scene. Now, Parabon can take a sample of DNA and create an image of what the person who left it might look like. It's pretty cool, and it can be freakily accurate. They can also tell what a person's genetic ancestry is, which can tell you stuff like hair color, eye color, skin tone. And yeah. in the case of Faith's killer, they said he was either of Native American and European ancestry or Latino. Um, next step was to bring in genetic genome. I panicked. Sorry. That always trips <laughs> me up, too. It's a weird phrase. The next step was to bring in genetic genealogy, you know, like 23andMe companies. Um, it's what caught the Golden State Killer and is, is is making murderers and rapists everywhere just pee their pants. Yeah. I love it. Right. Oh, there's cases all the time now. It's just these old cases are just getting solved. It's left and right and left and right. Yeah, because now your distant yeah. cousin looking up to see if they're yep. actually Italians got right. called out. I'm 3% Native American mm-hmm. and my second cousin got taken in for murder. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, people people send in their DNA to find out their genetic makeup and the profiles go into a database and the police can subpoena those databases to go digging around and find relatives of an anonymous suspect who left their DNA at a crime scene. Um, and when they submitted the profile of Faith's killer, they found he had some distant relatives in the system. And those relatives, fortunately, were happy to give samples of their DNA to help the investigation. And this eventually led to the arrest of a dude named Miguel Salguero Oliveras, almost nine years to the day of Faith's murder, which is kind of cool. It was like September 17th. It was like a week earlier. So dude got picked up on a DWI and they took his DNA as part of that. And boom, match. Now, it's kind of frustrating because the investigators haven't said a lot yet about this guy or why he allegedly committed this murder. He's under arrest. It's moving through the courts. My guess is that it's all going to come out pretty soon. But if I had to guess, I'm thinking it was a sex crime. He maybe saw her out with her friends the night before. Maybe he lived in the apartment complex, just saw her coming home in the wee hours of the morning and just took his chance. But we'll find out soon enough. I hope this is going to finally bring her family some peace. This girl was very well loved. And had a really bright future ahead of her. And it's just a really sad story. Mm-hmm. So that's it, folks. More info to come on that, I guess. So I don't know. What do you all think? Did y'all? Did any of y'all hear all that stuff on the voicemail? I really didn't. But I'm a skeptic about that stuff. So sometimes I'm like, no fun, Sally. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when it comes to... <laughs> if you're trying to get a 
words out of a muffled butt doll from a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> what are you expecting to get out of it? And when it comes, yeah. like true yeah. crime students are always going to do that, just speculate, which doesn't right. really help anything at the end of the day. But definitely, um, and if you if well, you watch that hurts. ID special, it's just nothing but bullshit. It's it really Off-off. was a lesson to me about not paying too much attention to those unsolved murder specials that they do, where they just focus in on these little things because it was really heavily focused on um, Karina and her ex boyfriend. They didn't have anything to do with it, you know. Well, yeah, you gotta you got you gotta pat out the story to make it good for TV, you know, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, stretching evidence further than it actually goes is just a great way to red herring people Mm -hmm. and to divert resources away from what we actually know. And there's I don't know if you got this from from your side of the research, Whitney, but the impression I got from the way that the investigators are holding their cards closer to their chest on this one is that maybe this dude is involved in more than one assault. I would not Um, be at all surprised. It doesn't seem like it would be his first time a crime like that. Um, and you know, from the note, it sounds like maybe she rejected him, mm-hmm. um, yeah. said something that hurt his fifis and he couldn't handle it. I'm not stupid, the, bitch. The, Jealous. The, yeah. The, the state of our society mm-hmm. where you hear that a man murdered a woman because she rejected him. You're like, yeah, that happens. Yeah, I know. We're so like horrifyingly blase about it. But yeah, it does happen. Mm-hmm. Was that Margaret Atwood quote that men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. It's mm-hmm. Like. It's searingly true, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all it takes is one like bad rejection for a man to like follow you home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's really scary. Yeah. So or pull, two really or just, stories. Well, Tucker Carlson and make a whole TV show about how much he hates women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Right after the one about how you're supposed to bake your testicles <laughs> to be more well, of a man. Again, if you feel that way about. Women, Bake. <laughs> Let me just bake them. Yeah, <laughs> we don't need you. <laughs> bake your nuts. Bake your nuts, please. By all means, kill every. Take yourself out of the gene pool. <laughs> exactly. Please. Zap them good. No twenty three and me for you. <laughs> I feel like we all like fire the, the fire the those test- little lasers. Pew, pew, pew. The weird horny goat weed testosterone pills that some of these things. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like they are already on their way to just nuking their nuts. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I feel like Tucker Carlson has probably t- taken those pills like a number of times. Like he's oh, yeah. probably regularly the ER a couple times goatees. for it too. Yeah, <laughs> sweating off his makeup. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> he seems like the target demographic for those horny goat weed pills. Definitely. Yeah, I bet you has a lot of stock in Viagra. Oh no, <laughs> oh, man! I bet absolutely. Oh, you know he does. You know he does. This Pretty. episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. and spanish fly (laughs) and those colored condoms in the vending machines in the bathroom you get a surprise in every in every purchase the surprise is an unwanted pregnancy (laughs) (laughs) on his iceberg recovered tucker carlson baked testicles (laughs) horny goat weed Those should definitely be tags when you post the episode. <laughs> hashtag horny goat weed. Hashtag Tucker Carlson. Hashtag baked testicles. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about an Amico. Yeah. We can get all That's of those. Right. Yeah, there you Absolutely. Go. Full, circle. Full circle. I bet they were hawking those pills at that Amico. Holy oh, load. guaranteed. Guaranteed. Yeah. And you know that Amico was 1999. <laughs> front for, for money laundering. They were yeah. selling Surge. They were selling Surge, horny goat weed, and... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What did they make? Like those, like cans of Frito beans. You know what I'm talking about? Oh god! <laughs> and out of all the things that survived Y2K, horny goat weed is no hair. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that sounds like a party right there. That's a good mm-hmm. Saturday night. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> that and some uh, cryptography, right? Yeah. yeah, that and some code cracking. I want to see if my husband can figure out that code. No joke. He's like really irritatingly smart. So you I'll, I'll report back on too. that. So you know, yeah, he always gets the flipping whirling too. He's so annoying. Ugh. But uh, anyway, this come was, listen to our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this was a great iceberg. Fantastic cases, everyone. Fantastic guests. Make sure you check out True Crime Campfire. They're amazing. Obviously, if you can't tell. Thank and you I so think- much for having us. This was fun. I'm- 
And I have to say, I'm obsessed with your show. I think I talk about your oh, podcast yeah. more than I talk about my podcast. We're big, big fans. We love you guys. We have to do this again, honestly. Another yeah. like, true oh, crime. I'd love to. Yeah, another little true crime hangout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was super fun. It feels like it went by really fast. <laughs> yeah. It did. I love dishing some tea on some murder. But yeah, so uh, enjoy the music. Uh, we love you all. Kisses from the homies. Now, this is the part. Yeah, we got it. Blah, blah. <laughs> I was afraid I had to explain. No, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Time now for your latest weather forecast. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.